Welcome to The Working Therapist with Hayden Bolick, a podcast designed to help you grow more, do more, and be more as a therapist. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. We're glad you've joined us for today's podcast. So here's your host, Hayden Bolick. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Working Therapist. I'm Hayden Bullock, your host. And today we have Nikki Grates, who is with us. Again, she's a physical therapist with PDT. And we are continuing our discussion with evaluation skills hypotonia. So welcome back, Nikki. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm fantastic. So last time you introduced yourself. And how about today to start us off? Why don't you just tell us about maybe a therapy session you had today or the last therapy session you did or what you've been doing today? I actually had a great therapy session today with one of my little babies. I've been working with her since she's about three months old and she's probably 16 to 18 months now and she did phenomenal today. She's got a lot going on. She was born premature, but she really doesn't like to use her left side, whether it be her trunk or the muscles in her neck and multiple times today she was sitting in her little boppy pillow and kind of started to fall over to the right and she just kept using her left side to sit back up and had a big smile on her face and she's a tough little girl and she's just doing amazing had a really great day today and got to write a great note home to mom letting her know just how awesome she was doing fantastic that's a good day mm-hmm. yeah that's awesome good yeah. deal and it's always good when the people you work with do great I mean you leave the day and you're like yeah good stuff happened I feel good mm-hmm. <laughs> well fantastic I'm glad that went well so and again thanks so much for helping us out with this podcast and we are going to start where we left off so can you give us just a short recap of what we did last time maybe what hypotonia is and then let's jump on into the assessment All right. So last time we just kind of talked about what hypotonia is and kind of gave some clinical characteristics of hypotonia. Mm -hmm. So kind of the major ones are you're seeing decreased strength, hypermobility in the joints. You can have delayed motor skills and you tend to have a decreased activity tolerance. We also talked about some of the etiologies of hypotonia, whether it be central nervous system, peripheral nervous system, the muscle itself, or it can be due to a hypofunctioning vestibular system. And then we kind of started getting into what to do during an assessment for hypotonia. So we talked a little bit about the subjective history and questions to ask and some of the standardized tests that you could do to get some objective measurements. But starting today, I was going to go into more detail about how to use the PIC system to observe a child and really get some good information during an evaluation. Fantastic. Exactly. Last time it just was so much information and great information that we just really had to break it into two so we could give every part their due. So why don't you start us off? We're talking about assessment and you're talking about the PIC model to use for assessment, right? Yep, that's right. Okay. Why don't you walk us through that? All right. So just a refresher, the PIC stands for posture and positions, initiation and inhibition and quality. And so there's a little chart that you can see in the show notes that kind of shows this and you can fill in information based on the position you're observing the child in. So you can observe them in supine, prone, sitting, standing, quadruped, and kneeling. Those are going to be the ones I kind of cover today for hypotonia. Okay. So you're going to walk us through all those positions, right? Yes. Great. Okay. So you said first was supine, correct? Yes. So if you're working with a child with hypotonia and you have them in supine, 
Some of the things you're going to look for as far as posture goes is the rib cage because a lot of times with these kids with hypotonia, you're going to see a flattening of the rib cage and they're going to be more of a horizontal orientation. So kids with hypotonia don't get a lot of trunk rotation and their obliques aren't always firing. So the rib cages tend to stay a little bit elevated and this can cause difficulty with respiration and kind of leads to that poor activity tolerance. So that's one thing to look for. Also, you want to look at their legs. So kids with hypotonia tend to be in more of a frog leg position with their legs abducted and externally rotated out. And they can also have a hard time finding that midline position in their head. Okay, so Nikki, let me ask you then, is the horizontal orientation of ribs that you're talking about, is that sort of the same thing as like the flaring of the rib cage? Because when I feel kids' rib cages and stuff, sometimes when I feel that flaring, I worry about the strength of the diaphragm and the stomach muscles for like longer productions of speech sounds. Yeah, and they go hand in hand. So basically what's going to help drop your rib cage is going to be your obliques firing. So lots of rolling and that crossing midline and trunk rotation, getting your obliques to fire, which is what brings your rib cage down into that more angular um, flattened. So when it is horizontal and it's elevated, you do get some of that flaring. All right, so it helps me understand what I'm thinking about when you're talking. I got a visual picture. So you talked about the rib cage and then the frog leg position and then... Did we handle everything in supine for the positions or what else? Well, we talked about what you're going to look at just as far as posture. So looking at that rib cage, looking at the position of their legs and their ability to maintain midline of their position in their head. But then you want to observe them and see what they can and can't do. So when a child's on their back, you want to see can they reciprocally move their arms and legs against gravity? So can they bring their hands to midline? I always like to see how the child's tracking, especially with kids with hypotonia, because as we talked about in the last podcast, your muscles in your eye can have low tone as well. So you can see some of that difficulty with tracking as well in the eye muscles. And then some other things you want to look at are some of their transitions. So are they rolling from their back to their side to stomach? Are they going from supine to sitting. A lot of times you'll see kids with low tone may be inhibited from getting chin tuck because they have increased cervical extension that's over lengthening their cervical flexors. So pulling to sit, they can have a lot of that head lag. So that's kind of looking at what they can and can't do. Mm -hmm. And then when you're looking at what they can do, you want to look at the quality of the movement as well. So Mm -hmm. for hypotonia, some of the big things you're going to see if they are rolling, a lot of times you're going to see more of that log rolling. So you're not going to see that trunk dissociation with crossing midline. And so that's part of the reason. It all kind of goes back together, but the rib cage and the obliques aren't firing. So you're not getting that rib cage pulling down. So your obliques aren't that strong. And so you're getting more of that log rolling rather than the crossing midline reaching across your body trunk dissociation. Huh. If they're not getting at that level, then that sets the stage then for other problems. I mean, like crossing midline as they get older, potentially? Yeah, definitely. You see that a lot with a lot of my older kids that come into the clinic. They have a lot of coordination concerns and they're lower tones. So when I start with them a little bit older, I kind of wish I got them when they were younger so I could work on some of these developmental things with them. Well, that's exactly what I was going to ask because quality to me always says the word like functional, like functional use, functional application, functional. So if you're looking at the quality of movement, not what just what they can and can't do, then that's when you're taking what they can and can't do and applying it to me and the quality of the movement and the functional use and functional application of their body and all that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That was good. All right. So then you're going to the next position. Then we did supine and now we're doing prone. 
Well, one more thing no. with supine. Yeah. So looking at the quality of those transitions, not just rolling, if you look at their transitions between sitting in the ground or going from their back to sitting up, they usually are more single plane movers. So whereas a typical transition, you're going to rotate your body, get that trunk rotation and push up. Kids with hypotonia tend to be more single plane. So they'll just sit straight up through midline. Huh. Yeah, that's very interesting. I hadn't really thought about that too much, Nikki, but as you're describing it, I can kind of picture various kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. How about in prone? Okay. So then moving on to the prone. So the first thing you're just going to look at their posture and what they look like. So a lot of times with these kids with low tone, you're going to see a lot of that cervical stacking. So Mm. they're hyperextending to keep their head up and they're just resting their head on their occiput. Mm. Sometimes they're even using their eyes to help hold their head up, or they may even retract their tongue to help keep their head up because they don't have that anti-gravity strength. Okay. Oh man, this is awesome. Cause I see this all the time in older kids when I'm working with kids with articulation or maybe they'll have poor tongue movement, low tone with the tongue and jaw movement. They're able to separate the tongue from the jaw for various articulation sounds, like even working with a child who has difficulty saying the R sound. And a lot of time I'll see that head stacking and their posture and sitting is they'll sit and then they'll curve their back over and they stack their head. Mm-hmm. And so when they are doing that stacking, they're not able to get full motion looking around to scan their environment. So they're not using their vision as much and they're not strengthening that vision. So mm. later down the line, you can see some of that depth perception mm. concerns or any of that focusing attention. The visual attention can be a concern too. Yeah. And so then I wonder if that would also feed into some handwriting, potential handwriting issues. Because a lot of times our little handwriting people have vision problems, not so yeah. much handwriting problems. I could definitely see them going hand in hand, that and the not crossing midline, because when Mm -hmm. you're writing, you know, you have to hold a piece of paper with one hand, cross over midline, and you have to keep going back and forth across midline. And if you don't have that foundation early on, it can lead to problems with handwriting as well. Oh, man. Nikki, this is so cool. I love this. (laughs) We're putting all these pieces together. I just love this. This is awesome. Yay. I love it. Okay. So keep going, because I'm all into this. This is great. When they're in prone, you also want to look at their legs. So this is where you can see some of that frog leg position as well. Legs abducted and rotated out. And that's some of that laxity in the hip joint that causes that. And if they are pushing up onto their arms, a lot of times you'll see hyperextension at the elbows because of that joint laxity as well. Okay. And are these like all of our little W sitters? Is this the group? There's different groups for W sitting. Sometimes it's high tone can be W sitting just because of the tonal pattern. But you'll see a lot of kids with low tone that W sit just because of the increased flexibility in the joints and Mm. the decreased core strength. And do you see the hyperextension in all the joints? Yeah, but it's usually the elbow and the knee that's most noticeable if you're looking at it. Okay. So in prone, when they're weight-bearing, pushing through their hands, you're going to see that through the elbow a lot. Very cool. Neat. Oh, and then the pick. So then the eye would be, again, the initiation and inhibition, right? Yes. Okay. So the things you're going to be looking for them to do in prone, are they pushing up through their hands? Are their hands open or closed? Are they reaching for toys on their belly? Can they roll from their belly to their back? Are they transitioning in and out of the prone position to sitting? A lot of times, kids with hypotonia may initiate movement with phasic bursts of muscles. So Hmm. basically, they're lifting their head with that cervical extension and then holding it there using what we were talking about before, that resting on the occiput. 
Oh, gosh. So would these little people who are lower tone, would they prefer their stomach or would they prefer their back? Or is that just a whole totally different issue? Just from experience, most Mm -hmm. of my kids prefer their back Mm. just because they're not having to actually see what's going on in their environment. They're not having to move against gravity quite as much. And a lot of times you're going to see those extensor muscles are pretty weak. So Mm. when they're on their belly, they're really having to use those extensor muscles to see what's going on. Yeah. I didn't know if it was just related to a low tone thing, but it sounds like it could be related to other things too. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the Q quality. Okay. So looking at the quality of their movements in prone, this is kind of similar to supine. You're looking when they're rolling, are they getting that trunk dissociation or is it all just kind of that log rolling, everything moving as one segment? You're also going to look at their ability to weight shift. So if they are reaching for toys in prone, a lot of kids with hypotonia have a hard time with that weight shifting piece. So this might be a difficult skill for them, or they might only reach with one hand because they've only kind of figured out how to weight shift to one side to use one hand. And the only other thing to really look at is those transitions. So before more of those straight plane movements, instead of getting that trunk rotation to help push up into sitting. Yeah, so I can see how with the difficulty with the weight shifting, then it could hinder what they play with, how they play, and that starts to affect other developmental areas. Yeah. Man. So we finish up prone and supine, and now we're really going to sitting, which I guess this is really where my comment about the head stacking and sitting that I see. When the kids are sitting, this is more when the speech therapist comes in on the scene. We're not really in the prone supine stage, though I'm happy to be there because I love infant feeding, but that's not normally where my role is. So now you're talking about kind of what I see more of. So walk us through the sitting stuff, Nikki. Okay. So when you're looking at a child sitting, the first thing you want to just look at is how do they prefer to sit and how we kind of talked about before, you'll see a lot of that W sitting. Do they like to long sit? Are they able to sit crisscross or do they have a wide base of support so their legs are opened up to give them a little bit more stability? Big piece here is the posture in sitting. So you're going to have a lot of that paraspinal weakness. So you're going to see that kyphotic posture. Their pelvis is going to be tilted posteriorly, and they're going to have that forward head posture. So actually, if you look at the pictures associated with some of these, there's a perfect example of a little boy sitting there. He's got that forward head, kyphosis, his Mm -hmm. pelvis is tilted back, and his hands are just kind of down in front of him. So that posture kind of makes it hard to use your hands and have that anterior movement of your upper extremities just by the way your weight is shifted. And also that posture can, just from a social, pragmatic perspective, could communicate to teachers and others that maybe he's not quite as interested or engaged when he absolutely could be he's just not in a position like an alert type of position and actually a lot of my kids with low tone that I work with that are school age I do make a goal just for sitting posture because it really does impact your attention and your ability to engage with what the teacher's saying if you're upright and sitting with good posture it really does I see that link with it yeah a lot of times I work with kids when they're in this position And it does affect their speech and their speech sounds and the production of their speech sounds and all that's tied to that in there. So very cool. I'm putting a lot of pieces together for myself here, Nikki. I'm very excited. Okay, so that's the P, right? Yes. And now the I. So the things you're looking for, what they can do, can they reach for toys, whether they're on the ground around them or if they're held up off the ground, can they reach for them? Are they able to cross midline to reach Mm. for a toy in sitting? And then can they transition between sitting and quadruped or prone and sitting? Are they able to make that transition? Okay. I've got therapy questions related to this, but I'm going to wait till the assessment and then we'll ask them. 
Okay. Because <laughs> I do have several. All right. So that's the initiation and inhibition and then the quality. Okay. So quality, if you're looking at that transition between sitting and quadruped, mm-hmm. this is where I see in almost all of my kids with hypotonia, they abduct their legs and they just kind of go forward in that single plane movement and they just kind of rotate their hips back behind them, which isn't how a typical child is going to do that transition. A typical child's going to flex one knee in towards their body, rotate their trunk and roll over the hip. Mm-hmm. Do you kind of get a visual with I that? I do. I do. Yes. <laughs> I'm sitting here doing all the movements I myself. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like you're feeding a baby. You can't help but like open your mouth at the same time. Yes, I can see it. So that goes back to that single plate movement. None of that trunk rotation. All that's from just starting with their rolling. You want them to be able to do it there. So when they get into this part where they're starting to crawl and get into quadruped, you want them to have that trunk rotation to be able to make those transitions with a better quality. Gotcha. Yeah. And see, and I love this pick, how it breaks it down. So it really kind of simplifies what you look at and when you look at it, and it sort of helps to focus. I like this whole model. Me too. All right. So now we're gone from sitting to standing. Yeah. So for standing, you're going to look at, same thing, look at their posture in standing. A lot of times with hypotonia, these kids are going to have a wider base of support. This is helping lower their center of mass so that they're more stable, but it puts their muscles in a poor length tension position, having that wider base of support so their muscles aren't firing the way a typical child would with a more typical base of support. Help me understand that. Say that again. Okay. So kids with low tone tend to widen their base of support. So it's giving them more stability. But when their hips are abducted like that, they're not in as good of alignment as if they had that shoulder width base of support. So the muscles aren't firing as they typically would if you were standing with your feet shoulder width apart. Hmm. So it can result in some muscle imbalances. Yeah. So that can make them look out of balance or do they lose their balance a lot maybe? Well, the wider base of support is helping them keep their balance. But when I say the muscle imbalance, Mm. it's more that if their hips are abducted, they're not firing their adductors as much as Mm -hmm. if you have your feet shoulder width apart. You're kind of getting that equal firing on both sides. Whereas if you start widening your base, you're getting more firing in one muscle group versus the other. Yeah. Your antagonist and your agonist aren't co-contracting to help keep you stabilized. So then I can see that it could lead to hip problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then also I'm just assuming because I work with enough physical therapists that also problems with your feet. I'm just going to assume that, right? Yes. And that's where I was going to go next. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Good. Yay. I got it right. Hot dog. All right. So go. <laughs> All right. So I always like to observe my kids with their shoes and socks off so I can really mm-hmm. get an idea of what their feet are looking like. A lot of these kids with hypotonia have really flat pronated feet. And mm-hmm. so you're going to see this move all the way up the chain. You're going to see the pronated feet, the calcaneal valgus, your knee valgus, you can get some hip internal and external rotation to compensate for some of this. And then your pelvis can be rotated. It can cause back pain. So all starting at your feet with the way your feet are positioned, it can cause problems all the way up the chain. But then is it coming from the hips really? So the hips are causing the problem with the feet, but it's really Uh, the low tone. Yeah. And I think everything is child dependent, but if I see a kid that has really flat pronated feet, I'm going to do something to help support them, whether it be just an insert, if it's not too severe or a little step or quadricep. Yep. We use little steps here at PDT and the quadricep system. So if you want to go back and listen, we did a podcast with Roberta Knoll and Dr. Louis DeCaro, and you can find out all about the little steps and quadriceps. And that's what you're referring to. Yes. All right. So you might do an insert. Yep. So, and if it's really severe, 
your pronation, you can even get an AFO or mm. an SMO if they need it, if they need more support than just what an insert can provide. Gotcha. But it's fascinating that all of those things can be happening at the same time or some or whatever. That's just so cool because you can just pick it apart. And I love that. Okay. So we did the posture now. Again, following our model, the I, initiation and inhibition. Okay, so some of the things you're looking at in standing, you want to see if they can squat and return to standing to pick something up. Are they able to reach in all planes without losing their balance? So you're kind of looking at what their ankle strategy looks like. And then are they able to raise up on their tiptoes to reach for toys? So they should be able to, when you say reach in all planes, they should be able to reach up over their head, down low, side, correct? Yeah, front, back. So can they shift their weight and move their body to reach for things without losing their balance or having to step? Okay. And you're looking at this standing as soon as kids are standing, walking, or is it even when they're cruising? Yes, I would look at it in all positions. So if they can't quite stand on their own, I would look at them standing at a support surface. Even if they're standing using a stander, I would... Assess what their feet look like, what their knees look like, what they can do with that support. All right. So then what's the quality? So quality is kind of referred to that you're going to look at that ankle or hip strategy. So Mm -hmm. are you getting a lot of movement at that ankle for them to try to keep their balance when they're reaching for things? Are they having to take that step to keep their balance if they want to reach for something outside their base of support? When you're looking at their squatting, you really want to look at their knee alignment. Mm -hmm. A lot of times you're going to get that medial knee collapse because they can't keep their knees in alignment when they're squatting to pick something up. Hmm. So you mean like their knees kind of go in when they squat? Mm-hmm. Ah. And then the other thing to look at with a lot of the pronation, a pronated foot doesn't lock. So you can get some breakdown in the midfoot and you're not getting an effective push off with the pronated foot. So you want to look when they're raising on their tiptoes, are their toes all splayed out? Are they getting that push off? from all their met heads or is it just coming more so from the big toe and there's a picture associated with this one that shows perfectly what that looks like with a pronated foot so the foot that's in there you can see all those four toes are really splayed out but all of the push off is just coming from that big toe Yes, a great picture. Who took that? Did you take it, Nikki? I did. That's when I had my student with me so I could take some pictures. (laughs) Yes, we love students, by the way. To anybody out there listening, we love students. But yes, that describes everything you're talking about. So that's an awesome picture because you really can see that little person, whoever was, girl or boy, all their weights on that big toe, right? Yeah. And later when we get into some treatment techniques, there's some good pictures and things that show how to help that. Okay, cool. So then you go back to quadruped. Is this the order you go in? Supine, prone, sitting, standing, quadruped. Is that right? Not necessarily. That was just kind of the order I put this together. So it really doesn't matter. No, not really. And I guess probably the reason the other four were first are because those are the big major ones. The quadruped Mm. and knee lane, you don't get it quite as much impact from those as you would from looking at the other four positions. So if you only have time to do a couple, I would do those four, supine, prone, sitting, and standing. Well, you know, and I like this model also, Nikki, because then if you only did have time for the four, you know, the next session, you could always go back and assess the quadruped then and the others. So you can continuously assess, I guess, even as you treat. Okay, so walk us through the quadruped stuff. So quadruped, you're going to see a lot of the same stuff you see in prone. So you'll see some of that elbow hyperextension with their weight bearing, and you'll see some of that cervical stacking when they're lifting their head to look around, and they won't get as much of that visual exploration because they're having to do that to keep their head up. But then you'll also see some lumbar lordosis, so they're not able to activate their core to keep their pelvis in neutral. So they're getting some of that lumbar lordosis with that cervical stacking. Oh, yes. Okay. They have all that. Go ahead. So... 
I kind of talked about the transitions under sitting. So you're looking at that transition between sitting and quadruped. Are they going through that straight plane movement or are they getting that trunk rotation and rotating over their leg? You're looking at their ability. Can they rock in quadruped? Can they reach for toys in quadruped? Are they able to sustain their body weight to lift one hand up? Can they creep over even terrain? Can they creep over small obstacles? So those are kind of the things you're looking at, what they can and can't do. Would you expect them not to be able to go over things or go over obstacles? Well, it's just harder. It's just like walking. You you walk on even surfaces and then you progress to uneven surfaces. So if you're crawling, you just want to do smooth, flat surfaces. But then can you get your hands up and over something? And then can you follow that? Can you use that core to get your legs up to clear something as well? Oh, gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. And so this is all the stuff under the I part, the initiation and inhibition, right? The transition between sitting to quadruped, that's where it starts, right? Yep, that's right. Okay, so then moving on to quality of the movement in quadruped, this is where you're going to look at that weight shifting. So weight shifting becomes really important when you're creeping because you have to get that left to right, front to back. So there's a lot of weight shifting that's involved. And some of the kids with hypotonia have some difficulty with the motor planning piece. So creeping can be difficult for them. So you want to look at Are they able to get that smooth weight shifting and smooth arm and leg movement? So the kids who are lower toned, do you find that they crawl for a shorter amount of time? Are they more likely to walk? Because it seems like if you have low tone, then you've got to do a lot of stuff to crawl. And it seems like it would be a lot more difficult than maybe just go ahead and getting up and walking. Yeah, but then walking, you need so much more strength in your legs and in your core to be able to stay upright and balance. I do, I guess, see if a kid's not quite crawling that they will stand at a support surface. But if they're having trouble with that weight shifting piece, that's probably going to impact their walking and their weight shifting with walking and cruising as well. So it kind of depends on where their impairment's coming from, gotcha. where they're going to have the more difficulty. So do you find that these kiddos are the ones that maybe just stay in sitting for longer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So then I think the last thing you said after quadruped, if I go back to the first list, was tall kneeling, half kneeling. So are you going to walk mm-hmm. us through that too? Yes. Okay. So when you're looking at tall kneeling and half kneeling, some of the postures you want to look at is a lot of times these kids like to just kind of hang out on their ligaments for balance. So if they're in that tall kneel position at a support surface, they're just kind of hanging out on those anterior ligaments in their hips and they're not actually using their glutes to stay upright. And that's what you'll see some of that lordosis and decreased core activation as well. When they get into that half kneel position, that foot that's forward, sometimes you can see really poor ankle stability in that foot. So it's hard for them to maintain their balance or they like to sit back and rest on their heels rather than stay upright in that kneeling position. So what does poor ankle stability look like? Like their ankle wobbles or what does it look like? They roll their ankle? Yeah. So if they don't have good ankle stability and they don't have some type of orthotic to help support that, you can see some of that medial rolling at the ankle and then that's going to make the knee go and then they're going to lose their balance. Or you can just see their ankle, they're working really hard. So if we were to get into a half kneel position, we'd be pretty stable. But a child with low tone, you'll see a lot more movement at that ankle because they're really working to keep everything firing together to stay upright. Gotcha. Okay. That makes better sense. And it kind of gives me a picture too. So then initiation and inhibition is next. Yep. So then you're going to look, if they're in tall kneel, can they shift their weight to get into that half kneel position to get ready to stand up? So going back to that weight shifting piece, are they able to pull themselves to stand at a support surface? And when they are in that kneeling position, can they reach and rotate their head without losing their balance? 
So I guess sometimes if they're severely low tone, just getting to the standing position would, for some of these kids, be enough. So they may not be the ones who pull stuff off of tables or maybe drop stuff down and look down. You know, a lot of that cause and effect kind of play and a lot of that, oh, if I do this, this happens kind of thing. So just how their interaction and play with toys might would be affected. Yeah, I actually have a little girl who's probably the most severe case of hypotonia I've ever had. She's got a rare genetic disorder and she's five now and we're still just getting, she can pull herself up to kneeling, but she doesn't have that strength in her legs in the coordination to pull herself all the way up to standing. So we're still kind of working on that piece, but she definitely has poor motivation. So unless a toy is kind of right in front of her, she knows how difficult it is to move her body now that she's getting bigger, that she just chooses not to. She's more content just to sit there and smile and be happy than have to work to get to something. So the motivation piece has been really hard to kind of get past. As you're talking about this, I wonder when some kids come to see me, you know, they're not talking. And so a lot of times they're just sort of happy not to talk. They're like more laid back. You know, they don't really have as much of an opinion. So some kids I see are wired pretty tight. You know, they're going to scream if they want something, that kind of thing. And other kids, you know, they're just not talking. It's just because they're like, eh, I'm not that motivated to really tell you what I want, you know. I'm going to start paying attention if they're, you know, more on the low tone side of life. If they really is not so much, they're just not as opinionated. If it's just maybe like, look, all this stuff is just too much work. You know? It could be. <laughs> you know? I mean, it takes a lot of breath support to produce sounds for talking. So if they don't have that foundation. Well, and, you know, if they also don't have the foundation of movement for like really exploring their environment, if they've been sort of happy sort of sitting and staying put. They haven't really understood, hey, I can do all these things. If I pull this cord of the lamp, the whole thing comes crashing down and that's pretty scary. But yet, hey, a lot of stuff happened. People came running, you know, then they just maybe be like, ah, well, whatever. I wonder if they understand it had as much effect on the world, you know, their body and their movements and what sounds they make, that kind of thing. I don't know. There's probably a dissertation or something like that in there, but maybe not for me. I don't know. Anyway. All right. So then after you've gotten through those positions, then what happens with assessment, Nikki? Are we still on the pick? Nope. So we talked about in the last podcast, some standardized testing you can do. And then we talked in detail about the pick and what to really observe during an assessment. But then just some other things that you want to check during an initial assessment or follow-up assessments you want to look at their range of motion. So typically, you're going to see that increased range of motion because of that joint laxity, but you can also see a few muscle groups that could be tight. So you want to check their pecs and their lats to see if those are tight because of that posture. If they're older and they've had that sustained kyphosis and forward head posture, Mm -hmm. you can have tight pecs and lats. And then you want to look at their intercostal muscles. So those can be tight as well based on just chronic poor posture. Hmm. Yeah. What's next after range of motion? And then, I mean, you've seen a lot of what they can do just from using the pick, but you can also just do a quick functional strength test. So you can look, can they do bridges to kind of assess their glute strength, look at their squatting, their transitions from the floor to stand. Do they really use their arms or can they do it without using their arms while holding a toy? Mm -hmm. Same thing, sitting on the bench, can they stand up without using their arms to help? And for some of our older kiddos, you want to look at their jumping. Can they hop on one foot? Are they able to go up and down stairs? So just some of those big functional skills can kind of give you an idea of what their strength looks like. And how long would you expect them to hold like a bridge position? It kind of depends on the age. When I'm doing an assessment, I kind of 
assess for 10 seconds and see if they mm -hmm. can keep their hips stable for 10 seconds. Sometimes they can hold it, but you see a lot of that sway. So that shows that they still have some glute weakness. Gotcha. So you're like really assessing if they can do it and the quality of it as well. Yeah. And then for squatting, how many times do they have to do that? That's kind of <laughs> something I just look out throughout an assessment. Gotcha. So, I mean, with the kids we're working with, they always want some kind of toy or something to play with to stay engaged. So just throughout the session, seeing when they squat down to pick it up. And I like to, in an initial assessment, just see what they prefer to do rather mm -hmm. than if they can do it the way I want them to. So yeah. kind of see what I'm starting with. Yeah. I think the last comment you just said is huge because, you know, a lot of times kids come in and we do assessments and we get the information we get from the doctor or we get from the referral source or wherever, sometimes doesn't match with a particular child. You know, you kind of can make a plan for an assessment. However, you have to also sort of be in the moment and go with what they sort of do. That last comment you said was, I like to see what they do versus what I'm wanting them to do. What they do naturally, I think is key and huge for a good pediatric therapist you can have a plan, but yet you have to always be in the moment and go with the child because they're a child. Yeah, I yeah. agree. <laughs> so, I mean, you can want to play Play-Doh all day, but a three-year-old, if they're like chucking the Play-Doh at you, there's a backup. <laughs> yeah. So then what's next? Okay, and then I do just a quick balance screening. So I look at single leg stance, tandem stance, balancing on their tiptoes. And I, if they're older and can follow directions, I see what they can do with their eyes open and with their eyes closed. So then you're really getting a true sense of their balance mm. systems. So balance is three systems. It's your vision, your somatosensory, and your vestibular. So when you start taking one of those away, you can start pinpointing and narrowing down where the problem may be. So we've talked about kids with hypotonia are prone to visual impairments because those muscles in the eyes can be low tone as well. So then you're kind of getting a better idea, whether it's vision related or you can put them on a compliant surface to check somatosensory. So kids with low tone have hypermobile joints. And so you're not getting as much proprioception through the joint and you're not having as good body awareness. So you can really piece all those together and try to pinpoint where their balance deficits can be coming from. Hmm. Do you ever videotape your assessments and go back and watch them later? Or is that really functional? Is that something you can really functionally do? I don't. I mean, sometimes it would be nice. And if mm -hmm. I have a student, maybe I'll try some of that. Just having a second person there so you can be working with the child and have someone videotape at the same time. But I have videotaped gate before just mm -hmm. to kind of monitor, right. but not too much I haven't. But that's something I'd be interested in doing. I agree with you. I've not ever been able to really videotape a whole assessment and go back and watch. I usually just don't have the luxury of the time to do it twice, you know, but I just was curious because sort of some of the things I'm looking for are different than you. And so I just wasn't sure. All right. So then you got your static balance. And then you can just look at some dynamic balance. Oh, so okay. if you have a balance beam, you can look, can they walk in tandem on a balance beam? Are they able to walk backwards? Can they walk laterally? Can they do sidestepping? If they are going up and down the stairs, do they have the control to do that without a handrail? So just some quick screens you can do to get an idea of what their balance looks like. Okay, then what? And then you want to look at all the senses. So you want to look at their sensation and their perception. And I've kind of talked about this throughout. Death perception can be compromised in children with hypotonia. Basically, its development relies on convergence of the eye and the self-initiated movement through space. So we were talking about earlier, those kids that don't have that motivation to move, they're not getting that self-initiated movement through space. So they're not getting that perception and how far away something is, how close it is. Oh, I'm moving my body closer. So that object is closer to me now. So they're kind of missing that piece. And yet I appreciate the reminder Then also you're assessing all the various sensory systems as well as muscle movement, 
and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then there's also research that shows children with Down syndrome, they have increased incidence of hearing problems, mm-hmm. or they may have increased sensitivity to sound. So you mm-hmm. want to assess that hearing piece too for some of these kids and just kind of rule that in or out. Okay, good. So Nikki, we have done static balance, we've done dynamic balance, we've done sensation and perception, and now what is next? So you also want to make sure that you're looking at proprioception. So just as a refresher definition of proprioceptors, so they're sensors in the limb that give information about joint angle, muscle length, and tension. So basically it's giving you information about where your limb is in space. So we've kind of talked about this throughout, but children with low tone do have decreased proprioception because of that hypermobility in the joint. And so you're not getting as much input through the joints to know where your body is in space. Boy, that was good. You broke that down. I wish somebody had told me that like 20 years ago. That would have saved me a lot of time, energy, blood, sweat, and tears. Nice. Everybody hit rewind and go back and listen to that again. That was awesome. (laughs) So simple, so clean, so beautiful. Okay, so you're assessing proprioception. So how do you do that? Okay, well, there's two different actual tests that you can do to look at proprioception. The first one is the limb movement sense test. So in this one, the child's going to keep their eyes closed and you're going to passively move one limb and the child's going to have to imitate what you're doing on the opposite side. So if you're doing this with the arms, you want them sitting in a chair with their eyes closed and you're going to move their arm and say you move their right arm, you want them moving their left arm with you. So you're getting an idea if they can feel what you're doing and know where their body is. And if you're looking at the legs, you want to do this in supine and you score this as either they can or they can't do it. And then there's another test, the limb matching test. So this one, the child's going to have their eyes closed. So you position one extremity and hold it there and then they have to duplicate it. So you're not moving at the same time, but you're moving it and then they have to duplicate it. And then this one can either be scored a zero or one or a two. So two is there's no error in matching the position. One is that it's approximately correct. So the joint angles are incorrect up to 30 degrees total. So no more than 30 degrees difference. And then zero is that they're off by more than 30 degrees. So they weren't able to match it. Hmm. I do the Peabody a lot with my kids and you can test proprioception indirectly during that test. So part of the test in the stationary portion is imitating movements. So if you have them imitate movements that are out of their visual field, so whether Mm. it's a little bit further behind their back so they can't see their arms, you're indirectly testing proprioception. So I kind of try to do that a little bit. And if I see a problem there, then maybe I'll look at it in more detail. Using mm-hmm. a Peabody too, and that's the imitation of movement. Yes. So there's just one part of that test mm-hmm. under stationary where it looks at your single leg stance and balance on tiptoes. It also looks at your ability to imitate movement. And so if you're doing that part of the Peabody, you can just at the same time be testing proprioception without having to do a separate test. Gotcha. Okay. And is that section of the Peabody, can you get a standard score for that part or is that a scored item? Well, it's part of the Peabody, oh, but gotcha. the proprioception piece is yeah. just... I mean, if you have them imitate movements, right. they can be in their visual field or out of their visual field. It doesn't really matter. But if you do it out of their visual field, then you're seeing if they're per perception intact as well. Okay. It's just a plus. Yes. Yeah. Save you time from doing a separate test. 
Yeah, so you do all that together. The testing proprioceptors, you do it kind of as you're doing the Peabody and as you're doing that section, you do the whole thing together. Mm-hmm. Yep. And just like a lot of your functional strength, you're seeing as they do the Peabody as well. So you, sometimes you don't have to do those things separately because you saw them do all of it during the Peabody. Exactly, yes. And that was a lot of information you gave, which was great. So again, the show notes have the detailed information in it. And so you can follow it right along. I have it sitting right here in front of me too, Nikki, but it does make good sense if you have it right here in front of you. So but print the show notes out. It really does help. Lots of good information there. It helps explain and helps with clarity because Nikki gave us nice, pretty breadcrumbs. It's beautiful. So then is that the end of the assessment? Yep. That's wow. pretty much a global everything you can and maybe <sighs> should do with a kid with hypotonia. Everything you want to assess, but we're afraid to ask about. Good. All right. That was awesome. So between part one and part two, that is a lot of fantastic information. But you kind of, Nikki, hinted around with this, but I want to make sure I'm clear and understand. So when you're doing this assessment for a child with low tone, it sounds like you're doing multiple things at one time or you're assessing and looking at multiple things maybe at one time. Yeah. So just kind of a way of how I do it and everybody's different. You know, I get my subjective information first and as things come up throughout the evaluation, I ask more questions if I need to, but I try to sit down and get all the background information first and then I take some time just observing the child. So I just kind of see what they can do without me putting any demands on them and then I kind of slowly get in and start, you know, looking at a few different things and then if standardized testing is appropriate, as they've gotten a little more comfortable with me, I try to do that. I gain more information through the standardized test by how they're performing those movements. And when I finish that, if there's still a few things I wanted to check, I'll kind of follow up with that. And then that's pretty much it. And I can usually get it done in about 45 minutes to an hour, depending on how complex the kid is. Wow, you're good. Do you have favorite go-to assessment toys or equipment that you sort of keep all the time? Before I evaluate a child, I think about their age and whether they're a boy or a girl. And I just try to get a toy that's going to keep them engaged for a while. Maybe that has a lot of different pieces. If I want to see a couple reps of something, they can do it multiple times for me so I can really get a clear picture. So whether it's a puzzle or something that just has a lot of pieces that go together, Mm -hmm. so they can do something multiple times is always good. Gotcha. I know speech therapist's favorite toys usually, but I wasn't sure about a physical therapist's favorite toys. Something with lots of pieces. I really think PTs aren't picky when it comes to toys. I don't plan toys as much. I kind of follow the kids' lead. So if they pick out a toy, I find a way to make something therapeutic out of it. So Again, you're sort of in the moment with the child. and You have an agenda of things you want to look at and see, but you're trying to see it as they functionally or naturally moving. Sort of in the moment. I love that. That's my favorite. In the moment because you really have to be in the moment with the child when you're looking at the whole child, assessing the whole child. If it's just your plan, then you're going to miss something probably. Yes. That's the write down from the whole podcast, people. Right (laughs) there. That's the one. You can pretty much be successful with anything if you get that part right. So it's about the kids. So again, thank you so much, Nikki. So the third part of this is going to be intervention. When I go to a continuing ed class, when people just talk about assessments and they don't spend a lot of time on intervention, intervention, I just get all upset. So we are not going to do that. We spent a lot of time on assessment and then we're going to donate a whole podcast to just treatment ideas and intervention strategies. And again, it's with Nikki. So it's going to be thebomb.com. And so stay tuned for the next one. I can't wait. I'm very excited. All right. Me too. I really appreciate it. Nikki It's awesome. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for listening. And I'll catch you next time on another episode of The Working Therapist. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Working Therapist, an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. 
If you would like more information regarding this podcast or would like to get in touch with us for any reason, visit us on the web at www.pediatricdt.com. That's pediatricdt.com. 